0: The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org.
1: So, we started a series a few weeks ago uh, looking at the importance of the Word of God. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the book of 2 Timothy with me. And um, let me pray, and then we'll dive into our Bible study. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your Word. We know that your Word is truth. We know that your Word is power. We know that your word is there to correct us, to train us, and to help us fulfill the will that you have for us. God, as we look into your word now, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to understand it and apply it to our life. In your name we pray.
0: Amen. I want to tell you about an article I read recently in Newsweek magazine. This article talked about Muslim students in Afghanistan. Go to schools in Afghanistan at the age of five or six years old, and there they begin a process whereby by the age of 13 or 14, they memorize the entire Quran, the Muslim holy book. Not only do they memorize it, these students come to these schools and they speak different languages, the Urdu or the Pashto language. They come to these schools and they memorize the Quran. Arabic, because that's the original language it was written in. I want you to imagine with me for a second what it would take for a church to say, well, we're going to start memorizing the New Testament. And not just memorize the New Testament, we're going to memorize it in Greek. So you do a process for over years, you memorize the New Testament in Greek. And when you finish that, then the task really begins. And you say, now we've got the Old Testament in Hebrew. And you say, well, David, that is preposterous. Obviously, we would never do that. We wouldn't even do that in English. Well, I think we need to ask the question this morning. If those people are that committed to learning the words of a false God, then what does that say about you and I?
1: scripture is 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 crucial um we looked at the story of mary and martha when jesus was visiting their home and as jesus was sitting in their living room and teaching uh, mary was sitting at his feet absorbing and taking in everything that jesus had to say while martha was in the kitchen working doing important stuff but she got upset and came out to the front room and said jesus why is it that you're allowing mary my sister just to sit there and 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 not help me. And he said to her, Martha, Martha, she has chosen the most important thing. Only one thing is necessary. Oh, we are a church that is about serving. We are a church that's about taking the words of God. As James said, don't just be readers of the word, but be doers of the word. G, uh, James said, the kind of religion that I desire is, is the religion that takes care of orphans and widows. It's important for us to be about the things of God. But if we don't know the things of God, we don't know how to be about the things of God. And it's got to start with us forming a foundation in our life that everything else is built on. And that foundation is Jesus himself. And this word of God that he has left for us brings us in line with who Jesus is. And my hope is that as a church, we would become so grounded in the word of God that the word of God is just naturally flowing through us and leading us one step at a time as we feed children, as we clothe the, the cold, as we feed the hungry. And this would be our anthem, that the word of God. God in flesh coming into us is the one who leads us and the one who takes us into our, our next steps. The book of Second Timothy written by uh, Paul says this, he was encouraging a young man who he was discipling and mentoring and raising up to then teach generations and other generations. And he said these words about Scripture. He said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, 16. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped Every good work. The Word of God is so important. We're going to be starting a class mid-February. We're trying to get a class happening at 9.30 on Sunday mornings and then at about 6.30 on Sunday nights. So you can pick and choose which one might work best for you. Teaching us how how the Bible makes sense, how to make sense of it. Um, How to know how all the different parts of the Bible fit together. How to study it for yourself and not just have to be spoon-fed by someone who already knows how to read it. We want to equip you to be people of the word of God. Approved workmen, not ashamed, knowing the truths and doctrines that are taught. As the book of Hebrews says, going on from milk and the basic understandings of Christianity to the deeper truths, the meat of the word. We want to help you do that. The word God breathe" comes from the word uh, theop, uh, theonutos, and I know I said it wrong. But it comes from the word theo, meaning God, theology, the study of God. "Noos," which comes from the root pneuma, which means spirit, the spirit-breathed word. And we believe that the Bible is so important that it is God-breathed. And here to lead us today, there's a little video.
2: interesting book. Let's talk about some of the facts. Fact number 1. This book is the best-selling book in the history of the world. Fact number 2. This book is also the most shoplifted book in the history of the world. Truthfully, this isn't just one book. It's actually 66 different books wrapped up into one. This Bible, 66 books, it contains 773,692 words. It would take the average person about 70 hours to read this book aloud. What's amazing is the Bible is written by all sorts of different people. It was written by politicians, by statesmen, by farmers, by shepherds, by peasants, by musicians, by poets, even by tax collectors. The Bible is also written from all sorts of different places. The Bible was written by Moses in the wilderness, by Jeremiah in the dungeon. It was written by Luke while traveling, Paul while he was in prison. It was written by John while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. This book, it was written from 13 different countries on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And what's amazing is even though the Bible is written from people from all different walks of life over a span of 1,500 years, it has amazing accuracy and consistency when it comes to the message about the character, the nature of God, and His redemptive plan for mankind. The Bible is the Word of God. Not only is it consistent, true, and inspired, but it speaks to so many different topics. Topics included in scripture include everything from marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery, sex, lust, greed, guilt, materialism, generosity, healing, hope, forgiveness, parenting, prayer, friendship, pride, obedience, heaven, hell, lying, murder, suicide, rape, Fears, doubt, miracles, love, hate, money, criticism, creation, government, submission, rebellion, peace, leadership, comparisons, joy, discontentment, sacrifice, delayed gratification, patience, faithfulness, enjoying life, self-control, disasters, injustices, demons, angels, discipleships, disciplines, fasting, honor, mercy, caring for the poor, handling wealth, family, And even cats, well, not really cats, but the Bible talks about the devil, same thing.
1: 1952, a man named Steve Sanders, a historian at the time, came up with a set of tests that could be used to weigh the, um, test the, uh, the A word, what word am I looking for? Authenticity, is that what you said? Authenticity of any historical writing. And um, uh, Stephen Sanders came up with these three tests that you could look back at any historical writing and. And and test them to see uh, if they were true, if they could be uh, depended on and reliable and trustworthy. And this morning, I want to take just a quick opportunity to apply these three tests to the Word of God. The first one is called the internal test. And if you have your notes, you can fill in blanks as we go along and write down any thoughts that jump out at you. The first test is the internal test. And the internal test asks this question, do the writers of whatever your testing of the writing that's been presented, do the writers claim that what they wrote is true? Uh, There are many different kinds of writings. You have have authors like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien that write fantasy. And um, while many speculate that a lot of what they were writing in their books, Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings series, um, many look at the parallels between those fantasy stories and the teachings of the Bible. Uh, You can also... Look it through, and you can see books written by people like Dr. Seuss or historians like Josephus. And someone that is looking at a historical writing wants to know what the actual writer. Did the writer say, you know, I've got a really neat story I've written down and I want to tell you? What do they say about it? Oh, I, 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 I was dreaming and imagining, and, and this is made up, but I, it's a lot of fun and I want to share it with you. Or did they say, you know, I've written this because I saw it. It's accurate, and it's true. And I believe it's important for you to know these facts. What did the writers of the Bible say about what they wrote? In Second Peter chapter one, verse 16, Peter, one of the closest friends and disciples of Jesus, said this about the Word of God. Second Peter, 1:16 says, "We did not follow cleverly invented stories." You see those words there? These weren't cleverly invented stories. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, we were what? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter is saying, I was there. I saw what I saw. I touched the one, the Messiah. I I heard the things. I experienced the miracles and I've written them down so that you would know them today. What did the authors say about what they were writing? Secondly, if you look at the time and season when most of the books of the New Testament were written, between 47 and, and about 70 A.D., there were many people living in that time that were considered first-generation believers, followers of the way, as recorded in Acts, people who were coming to know Jesus and, and hearing the apostles' teachings and seeing the letters that were being written and circulated through their towns. At any time, they could have written their own refuting what was being said. They could have made their own accounts saying that what is being recorded is not true. But this didn't happen. Clearly, across the board, everyone would say, yes, the Bible passes the internal test. The writers claim that what they believed they were writing was true. And this is demonstrated even further when you look at how most of the writers of Scripture Ended, had their lives uh, go and how their lives ended. A majority of the disciples and many of the writers of the uh, of the scriptures faced death. They could have easily been uh, sacrificed or their lives spared if they would simply say, "You know what? What we wrote was made up. We were just trying to form a following of our own, or get rich quick schemes, or something going on that we could get people to believe in." But Most of these writers went to their death believing in this as truth. And many, many people would die for something they believe in, but very few would die for a lie. And here we have the authors themselves saying they believe that what is written is true. The internal test. The second test that Sanders would would put out would be called the external test not just looking about the writings itself and what the authors of the writers uh, of the writings would say, but what do external sources say about the things that are written in the Bible? You can look throughout history and see that the, the person of Jesus historically has been, has been founded. There are many religions, many historians that have written about a man named Jesus. There are many religions who don't, while they don't see him as the Savior or the Son of God, they see him as a, a great teacher or a prophet. The claims of Jesus are, 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 the writings of Jesus, the person of Jesus, are, are well founded in history. We have people such as a historian named Josephus and other non biblical writers and non biblical texts that affirm and confirm the biblical stories. Josephus wrote about Jesus, he wrote about John the Baptist, he wrote about the brother of Jesus named James, and many other leaders and events found in the Bible. There are Roman writings, Greek writings, Jewish writings about the events found in Scripture. Many historical, non-biblical writings in alignment with what the Bible claims is true. In addition to the writings, we also can look back at archaeology. For years, critics held that the Bible didn't stand up to archaeological tests because simply for the lack of evidence. There were a lot of stories, there were were peoples and places and kingdoms mentioned that, that archaeologists had not yet found evidence for. But in the 20th century, discovery after discovery, many different findings have pointed to things previously spoken about in the scriptures and the stack of evidence is building. If you go on Google and just type in archaeology and Bible, you'll find tons of articles from news sources like National Geographic or Time Magazine or others that point to the things in Scripture as, and, and discoveries pointing back to them. There is a, a famous uh, historical archaeologist by the name of Nelson Gluick, and at the time of his life, he made the statement, it can be stated categor- categorically, that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. When you compare the Bible and the history and the archaeological finds that are being found now, the evidence is is stacking up. When you compare it to other writings, there's a a man named Joseph Smith who wrote the Mormon Bible. And he did not like the teachings as found in these scriptures, so he decided to take some texts that he liked from this Bible and created his own and he made up the names of people groups and the names of early settlers in the Americas and uh, different things and archaeologists have gone back and said this is all fairy tale and myths it it doesn't hold up to the same tests when you weigh the same archaeological and historical uh, evidence that points to the scriptures holding to what is true the external test, what does outside evidence say about the Bible? It looks pretty good when you look at it archaeologically and historically. And I'm excited in a month or two when a group of us are getting able to go to Israel and we get to see firsthand some of the historical places that are spoken of in Scripture. The third test, the bibliographer. I can't speak this morning. Bibliographic test. I still said it wrong. Let's talk about this third test. This test asks the question, how well have the documents been translated over time from their origin to today? You know, with different writings, there can be a number of first prints. Anybody here have a really fancy first print edition of something? that's worth a lot of money. Anybody? Any book collectors here? Okay. We'll hopefully have a couple next service. Um I know if Jared was here; he has a couple first prints of some comics that are sought after. Uh, what can make a first print special is either uh it's it's run being short and there're only being a few copies, so it's rare and if it's something important sought after, then the value climbs. Uh, another way to look at it is just the opposite if there's a few copies, it can be considered rare and sought after or It can be so important that the author wants the news spread, and so they make as many copies as possible so that the the news can be circulated. When you look at historical writings before the invention of the printing press and, and modernized ways of making multiple copies, the history points to documents that were printed and multiplied, and we see that there are a couple things that history points to Um, as great examples of of historical uh, context. If we compare the Bible, for instance, to such writings as, say, the Odyssey or the Iliad by Homer, which some of you may have had to read in high school, do you know how many copies exist of the Iliad by Homer? History reports that there are 643 copies, which is considered a ton. There are so many copies of that because that information wanted to be circulated and they wanted it to get out. Other historical writings that are looked at as as accurate and authentic are Plato's Republic. You know how many copies of that we have? Seven. Seven of the original. Aristotle, five. The writings of Caesar, we have ten. The most accepted of these historical writings would be the Iliad at 643. And that is a tonne. But when we look at the writings of the Bible, if we look specifically at the letters in the New Testament and how they were copied so that the letters could be passed on to others, there's not 643, there's not 1,000, but there's over 24,000 copies. That just blows any other writing away. The Bible being the most circulated book in all of history, the Bible being one of the most uh, meticulously copied. Do you know uh, when the Bible, the early uh, scriptures were written, the Old Testament? Uh, those who would receive the word of God and and took the responsibility of preserving it would take the text, and when they would make a copy, so that the copies, as they would get worn out or or hard to read or somehow uh, uh, began to fall apart, the 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 writer. The, transcribers, the translators would, would count the letters and they would find the central letter in the text and then they would compare it to the one that was just handwritten, letter by letter, note by note, and if there was a miscount at any time, no matter how much work had been put into it, that scroll would be destroyed. They took it that seriously and they would start over again. The Bible was carefully written Carefully copied, carefully passed on, again and again. The right the, because of this process, there were there weren't very many copies of many of the Old Testament, and 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 the text that we have uh, that was seen as the most reliable is called the Masoretic text. And for years, this was looked at as as the best copy we had. Now the story gets interesting here in 70 A.D. when the Romans were ruling over the Jews. The Romans wanted to destroy the, Ro- the Jewish culture. They wanted to destroy the religion. And so they came in to destroy the temple, destroy the writings. And, and many of the Jews took the scrolls that they had at that time. They put them in bottles and they hid them. Many times underground or in caves. And for close to 18,000 years, the only text that we had pointing back to original manuscripts was known as the Masoretic text. But in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd stumbled upon some bottles in a cave where he decided to get out of the sun and rest for a little bit while taking care of his his cattle. And he found these bottles, and inside these ancient scrolls, when passing those in, archaeologists would come and look at them, and they've been known now, come to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And over the next year, archaeologists would go back and find 11 other sources of this set of scrolls that were hidden by the Jews during the Roman destruction. And these scrolls, when compared to the Masoretic texts, many of them had been, uh, over the years, deteriorating, but what they could compare was stunningly accurate. It was very meticulous, the process that the Old Testament writers would take to make sure that what was passed on to us was true and accurate. So how accurate are the biblical copies? There's another professor by the name of Peter Stoner, if I like that last name, but anyway, Peter Stoner got together 600 of his college students to do a study on the possibility of the prophecies in the Old Testament coming true. How many of you like movies? Anybody? A few of you. Okay, that's that's good. How many of you like movies with plot twists and predictions? and? Uh, yeah, I love them. One of, the, one of the greatest set of movies, a movie you might have heard of. Star Wars line of movies. Um, le- leaves us with many questions. Uh, who were Rey's parents? What is the origin of snow? Uh, what does Maz have to do with this story? And what role will Luke and Leia play in the next movie? Uh, questions that I'm sure keep most of us up at night. There are all kinds of things in movies, plot twists and predictions, and you love it when they come together and the way they form. And when you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament. It wasn't just a a series of writings and moral truths and uh, laws passed on, but it's filled with predictions called prophecies, pointing to things that would happen in history, kingdoms that would rise and fall, leaders that would be in power, and a Messiah that would come. For thousands and thousands of years, prophecies were written about a coming king, a Messiah, who would save his people. And it wasn't just global general statements like one day a Messiah will come. But there were literal prophecies that a Savior would be born in the town of Bethlehem. That a Savior would die and be buried in a borrowed man, in a a tomb borrowed by another man. There were prophecies that many skeptics would look and say, well, Jesus read these prophecies and he just made sure to do the things that were prophesied about him so that he could convince people some kind of God, but there were many things out of his control, how you're born and when you die and how you're buried are kind of outside of your control. And so when you look at the Old Testament prophecies, there are many prophecies about historical events, kings and kingdoms. And when you look at the prophecies about Jesus himself, there's over 50. And this this professor, Peter Stoner, said, you know, I want to see what the odds are of these prophecies coming true. Is it possible that these could have come true in anyone?" How supernatural is this? And so he set out to prove or disprove and to set, th- set out some statistical odds so that we could have a picture of what this was about. And he said, we want to do this test based on just eight of the prophecies, not all 50, but just eight. What are the odds of eight things predicted in the past coming true in just the life of one man? And as they did their studies, they came up with a, uh, a stunning number. They said that the odds were 1 to 10 with 17 zeros following that 10. That's a really big number. I don't even know the name. Is there any mathematician who knows what to call that number, 10 with 17 zeros? It's it's astronomical. To make it simple for us lay people to understand, he said, take the state of Texas. Cover the state of Texas with silver dollars. That's a lot of silver dollars. Now cover it again and again and again till the silver dollars are two feet deep. That's a lot of silver dollars. He said, now take one coin, mark it, and throw it into the sea of silver dollars. And take a blind man, blindfold him, and tell him to walk around the state. Take a month, a week, a year, uh, however long he wants. And when he just happens to feel like he's in the right spot, tell him to bend over and pick up the coin that he thinks is the one we the likelihood of him finding that is almost the same as just eight prophecies coming true in the life of one person. It's, un- it's unbelievable. It's almost impossible. And yet there are over 50 prophecies about Jesus that all point to him as the Messiah, as the Savior. I want to read for you on the back of your notes. I've got some of the references of some of my favorite prophecies that came true. In the life of Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was born. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 wrote that Jesus would be born of a virgin. The virgin will be with the child and give birth to a son. In Matthew chapter 1 it was fulfilled. Micah 5 prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. It was filled, fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. Isaiah 11 said that Jesus would be anointed by the spirit. It was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 3. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey. In John 12, it was so. Psalm 41 said that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, has lifted his heel against me. And in the 26th chapter of Matthew, this prophecy was fulfilled. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal for them. The one I kiss is the man. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. The Old Testament said Jesus would be silent before his accusers. In the New Testament, we see this prophecy come true. Isaiah 50 said that Jesus would be one day beaten and spat upon. In Matthew 26, we see this horrible prophecy come true. Concerning Jesus, Psalm 22 said, they would one day cast lots for his clothing. In John 19, it was fulfilled. In Psalm 118, we see that one day Jesus would rise again. I will not die, but live and proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. In Mark 16, we show that's exactly what happened. There are many prophecies in the scripture. If the scriptures were just fairy tales and myths, we would not see the history line up with the scriptures, archaeological discoveries line up with the scriptures, and prophecies the way they keep unfolding and coming true. So my hope is that we, as the people of Hope Hill Church, would take seriously the word of God, not just as a sacred, sacred special, supernatural writing, but as a love letter written to us, and that we would begin to read it, dive into it and try to figure out how it's directing us in our life. There was an interview that I was reading uh, where a set of uh, pastors were brought together and they were all asked, what's the one thing you would, you would want for your congregation? If you could only pick one thing, would it be that they would be better tithers so that your church could do more to impact the world? Would it be that they would become missionaries so that all the unreached people groups in the world would be able to be reached? Would it be that they would become faithful in loving their neighbors as they love themselves? What's the one thing you would want? One at a time, each pastor present said that our people would read the word of God and begin to do what it says. That's it. The word of God is our foundation. It's our roadmap for life. It's our basic instructions before leaving. Earth, And it has a purpose and a plan for each of us to follow. And my hope is that we, the people of God, would become people of the word of God. And we want to help you do that. I read to you some prophecies that have already come true. There's a few others that have not yet to be known. Check out some of these prophecies to
2: Whose rider is called faithful and true With justice he judges and makes war His eyes are like a blazing fire And on his head are many crowns He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood And his name is the word of God The armies of heaven were following him Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword With which to strike down the nations He will rule them with an iron scepter he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. After this, I looked, and there before me is a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, praise and glory.
1: And in his son, Jesus Christ, who came to die on a cross in our place to pay for our sins and to offer us forgiveness, that you would confess that you need him today. That you would accept the love that he um, unconditionally pours out to any who would receive it, that you would give your life over to him. And if you have already done this and you know him as Savior and Lord, are you walking in the light of his word? Are you meeting with him each day and allowing his words to penetrate your heart and to lead and guide your life. This is my hope, that we would be people of the word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. You're not a distant and removed God, but you're a God who cares about the intimate details in our life. And you have left us your word so that we can read it and study it together and grow in it and apply it to our life direction and purpose in this life. And I pray, God, for those who might be here today who haven't opened up their heart and life to receive your forgiveness and to receive the power of your Holy Spirit to transform them and to give their lives over to you, saying, Lord, become my Savior. Become my God. Forgive me of my sins. Show me how to follow you. I give my life to You." If you're here this morning and you want to give your life to the Lord, the scriptures say that if you simply believe in him, that he went to the cross in your place and died for you to give you new life, if you call out to him and admit that you are a sinner in need of his forgiveness, that he will come in and make you new. He will walk with you. He will help help you grow, and he will take you from this step. that is something that you know you need to do, giving your heart over to him, then you can do it right here today. In this moment, as our worship team leads us, just call out to him in the stillness of this moment. Father God, come into my life. Forgive me. Make me new. Help me to follow you. For those of you that are here this morning that know him as Savior and Lord, each week I've been asking you to consider where you stand with where you are in your time spending with him in 2019 my hope is that we would commit to living and walking with him each and every day i have a sheet on your seats and if that is a commitment you're willing to make maybe today is the day that you're giving your life to jesus for the first time truly saying i want you to be my lord if that's true for you today check that first box today i submit to jesus as my savior If you know that you're ready and you need to take that next step of baptism, we're going to have baptism in two weeks. We would love to meet with you about that, explain to you what baptism is, a symbol of us being buried with Christ and walking a new life, a new person. If your next step is to say, you know, I've taken those steps, but I know I need to be regularly meeting with my God and I'm committing to being a regular reader of the Bible and meditating on his word, then I want you to check that box. And then if you want to sign up for the class, we'll be starting in February to to, to, to get a better understanding of his word. And let us know if that's something you want us to do. Father God, we thank you for being here. We thank you for being a God that made it all possible for us to be reunited with you. We know that the night... you were arrested you took a piece of bread as you were sitting with your close friends and you told them tonight as you eat of this bread let it be a symbol of my body that will be broken for you and then he says to us living 2,000 years later each time that you gather together and you eat of this bread remember my love for you remember that I went to the cross for you remember that my body was broken for you and he took the cup that night wine. And he said, as you taste of this, remember my blood that will be shed for you, the blood that will be shed to offer forgiveness for the sins of the world. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, remember how much I love you and how I want you to live for me. So when you're ready, for those of you here today who consider Jesus your Savior and Lord, when you're ready to to celebrate in thankfulness and worship of what he did for us and what he wants us to do for him, Come up to the front or go to the back and, and participate in communion, taking a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup and remembering what Jesus did for us. For those of you that give your heart today, we have some prayer team members in the back. Mike and Rob are back there. I'm up here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. Just come up and say, Pastor John or Mike or Rob, I gave my heart to Jesus today. We'd love to just say a prayer of, of celebration with you. And if there's something else going on in your heart and you want prayer about it, let us know. We'd love to pray with you. If you're making a commitment to dive deeper into the word, bring me your sheet. I'd love to personally hold you accountable and cheer you on in 2019. Bring that sheet up to me if you feel led to make that step.
2: God, thank you for your love for us. Move
1: through us now as we reflect and respond as you lead us. In your name we pray.